And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. <laughs> I told you this at the beginning. I, I have, I, I'm embarrassed. It happened earlier today. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning and I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrified because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> <laughs> and this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me because I think because I'm sitting so close to you <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda? You didn't get here because of some dark money groups? You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done. By being, <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> And, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying, nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not going to let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here, but at night when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices, the guy comes up to me, all he wants to say I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here. But he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder, starts crying. And I, I just hugged him. And he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We can write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given as good of a speech but talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced. And you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues, and I'm, again, I'm in my joy. I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice, who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala, and we have a knowing glance, which we've had for years, when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means what it means. And I want to tell you, when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books. But for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. 
Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. I'm jazz artist Brettina, and I love listening to The Alvin Galloway Show every Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on RadioPhoenix.org for conversation, information, music, and culture. So stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up on The Alvin Galloway Show. How do we see our lives? This is the Alvin Galloway Show. And that was the emotional response from Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey during the Judiciary Committee hearings on Supreme Court Justice nominee Katenji Brown-Jackson. I can't recall, and it probably is, but I'm, I can't recall a more emotional, strong, forceful, supportive commentary for a black woman than what Senator Booker just said. He said, you have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Regardless of what the Republicans on the committee tried to say and how they tried to paint it, the appalling questions that they had, appalling diatribe that they gave, no matter what Lindsey Graham said, no matter what Ted Cruz said, no matter what the senator from Tennessee said, or Kentucky, wherever she's from, I think Tennessee. Miss Jackson is probably the best qualified nominee for the Supreme Court, is the best qualified nominee for the Supreme Court that has faced the Judiciary Committee in numerous years, especially, I would say, the last three nominees that have been approved for the Supreme Court. Look at her education. Look at her career. Look at her strength to overcome the obstacles that she has overcome. And you have this as I said, appalling and degenerate individuals who sit, sit on the Republican side with their questions, question her character, questioning her education, questioning her stance, questioning her being as a human. But my man, Cory Booker, put it all in perspective. Because you have earned this spot, he told her. And he told the nation. 
and he told his colleagues on the committee, she has earned this spot. She is worthy, and no matter what you say or try to do, she is the best nominee for the Supreme Court. Amazing. And, you know, it's so good. I'm going to play it again, and I'm going to extend it a little bit so everybody can hear this once again. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not letting anybody in the Senate steal my joy. <laughs> I told you this at the beginning. I, I have, I, I'm embarrassed. It happened earlier today. I just look at you and I, I start getting full of emotion. I'm jogging this morning and I'm at the end of the block I live on. And I get terrified because I put my music on loud when I'm jogging, <laughs> trying to block out the noise of the, of the heart attack I'm having. <laughs> And this woman comes up on me, practically tackles me, an African-American woman. And the look on her eyes, she just wanted to touch me, because I think, because I'm sitting so close to you, <laughs> and tell me what it meant to her to watch you sitting where you're sitting. And you did not get there because of some left-wing agenda? You didn't get here because of some dark money groups? You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done by being <laughs> like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm just sitting here saying nobody's stealing my joy. Nobody's going to make me angry, especially not people that are called in a conservative magazine demagogic for what they're bringing up that just doesn't hold water. I'm not gonna let my joy be stolen because I know you and I, we appreciate something that we get that a lot of my colleagues don't. I know Tim Scott does. When I first came to this place, I was the fourth black person ever popularly elected to the United States Senate. And I still remember a lot of mixed people, white folks, black folks work here, but at night when people are in line to come in to clean this place, the, the, the percentage of minorities shift a lot. And so I'm walking here, first week I'm here, and somebody who's been here for decades doing the urgent work of the Senate, but it's the unglamorous work that goes on no matter who's in offices. The guy comes up to me, all he wants to say I can tell is, I'm so happy you're here. But he comes up and he can't get the words out. And this man, my elder, starts crying. And I, I just hugged him, and he just kept telling me, it is so good to see you here. It's so good to see you here. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I, I love my brother, Tim Scott. We could write a dissertation on our disagreements. He gave the best speech on race. I wish I could have given as good of a speech. But talking to the challenges and indignities that are still faced. And you're here. I was in the White House with my Democratic colleagues, and... I'm, again, I'm in my joy. I can't help it. <laughs> and, and, and the president's asking our advice, who should we nominate and whatever. And I look at Kamala and we have a knowing glance, which we've had for years when she and I used to sit on this end of this committee at times. And then I try to get out to the president what it means. What it means. And I want to tell you, when I look at you, this is why I get emotional. I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're a person that 
is so much more than your race and gender. You're a Christian, you're a mom, you're, you're, you're an intellect, you love books, but for me, I'm sorry, I, I, it's hard for me not to look at you and not see my mom, not to see my, my cousins, one of them who had to come here and sit behind you. She had to, be, she had to have your back. I see my ancestors and yours. Nobody's going to steal the joy of that woman in the street or the calls that I'm getting or the texts. Nobody's going to steal that joy. You have earned this spot. You are worthy. You are a great American. Your hero is Constance Baker Motley. Mine, she has sat on my desk for my offices that I've held. She's my icon of America. Her name is Harriet Tubman. There is a love in this country that is extraordinary. You admitted it about your parents. They loved this nation, even though there were laws preventing them from getting together. When they were loving, there were laws in this country that would have prevented you from marrying your husband. It wasn't that long ago, it was last generation. But they didn't stop loving this country, even though this country didn't love them back. And what were the words of your heroes and mine? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That is the story of how you got to this desk, you and I and everyone here, generations of folk who came here and said, America, I'm Irish, you may say, no, Irish or dogs need to apply, but I'm going to show this country that I can be free here. I can make this country love me as much as I love it. Chinese Americans first forced into mere slave labor, building our railroads, connecting our country, saw the ugliest of America, but they were going to build their home here and say, America, you may not love me yet, but I'm going to make this nation live up to its promise and hope. LGBTQ Americans from Stonewall women to Seneca, hidden figures who didn't even get their play until some Hollywood movie finally talked about them and how they were critical for us defying gravity. All of these people loved America. And so you faced insults here that were shocking to me. Well, actually not shocking. But you are here because of that kind of love. And nobody's taken this away from me. So you got five more folk to go through, <laughs> five more of us. And then you can sit back and let us have all the debates. And I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a well-charted Senate floor because it's not going to stop. They're going to accuse you of this and that. Heck, in honor of your person who shares your birthday, you might be called a communist. But don't worry, my sister. Don't worry. God has got you.
And how do I know that? Because you're here. And I know what it's taken for you to sit in that seat. Harriet Tubman is one of my heroes because the more I read about this person, the more, I mean, she was viciously beaten. Her whole life, she used to fall into spells, cracked skull. She faced starvation, chased by dogs. And when she got to freedom, what did she do? Did she rest? No, she went back again and again and again. The, star was, the sky was full of stars, but she found one that was a harbinger of hope for better days, not just for her and those people that were enslaved, but a, a harbinger of hope for this country. And she never gave up on America. She fought in the led troops in the Civil War. She was involved in the suffrage movement. And as I came back from my run, after being near assaulted by, a, by someone on the street, I thought about her and how she looked up. She kept looking up. No matter what they did to her, she never stopped looking up. And that star... It was a harbinger of hope. Today, you're my star. You are my harbinger of hope. This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the, onto the highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you. Thank you. What did he say? I'm not letting anybody, anybody steal my joy. And you could tell the emotion that he felt and that this was really coming from his heart because he knows the games that they play in the, in the Senate. He knows that the games that they play in politics, but he is there to protect her, to be that knight in shining armor, to make sure that they understand, that his colleagues on the Republican side understand, uh-uh, no, it ain't flying. And so um, Judge Kantanji Brown Jackson will probably, uh, I think this week, uh, it will go to the full Senate. You know, the Republicans will try to play some types of games. Um, but she most likely, and I would say guaranteed to be confirmed. Um, because most, I would say all the Democrats will be on her side. And she has currently one Republican, which is good. Too bad. Uh, hopefully there's some others that have will have uh, some courage uh, that will, will have some moral standing uh, that will also vote for her confirmation. And we shall see if that is true. I'm not holding my breath because um, of the past history of the uh, Senate and Republicans who had no courage, no moral backbone in dealing with the 
surpass president number 45 in all the craziness that he did. They did not have the courage to convict him. But hopefully some others on this situation will have the courage to support her nomination. And we know Lindsey Graham has no backbone at all. And neither does McConnell. Okay, I'm just going to read a little bit of um, Judge Brown Jackson's um, bio of her, a little bit of information on her. Now, she was born in Washington, D.C., grew up in Miami, Florida, where her parents were from. Um, the parents returned to uh, Miami, so her father, who was a teacher, and also her, mo her mother was a teacher, uh, went to, her father wanted to go back to school and become a lawyer, so he attended law school. And both of her parents, uh, like I said, had careers as public school teachers and became leaders and administrators in the Miami-Dade public school system. Uh, when Judge Jackson was in preschool, her father attended law school in 2017. And in, in a 2017 lecture, Jackson traced her love for the law back to sitting next to her father in their apartment as he tackled his law school homework, reading cases and preparing for a saccharatic questioning while she undertook her preschool homework coloring books. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, Judge Jackson stood out as a high school, as a high achiever throughout her childhood. She was speech and debate star who was elected mayor, quote unquote mayor of Palmetto Junior High School and student body president of Miami Palmetto Senior High School. But like many black women, Judge Jackson still faced naysayers when Judge Jackson told her high school guidance counselor she wanted to attend Harvard. The guidance counselor warned that Judge Jackson should not set her sights, quote unquote, sights so high. Hmm. Yeah, that happens to a lot of black, uh, not only black women, but black males too, because I remember when uh, one of my nephews was living with me and um, I had a meeting with his guidance counselor um, about some of his classes and um, and she said that uh, maybe he shouldn't take this certain class because uh, he only should take this certain class if he's going to go to college or something. And, of course, I was furious, and I told her, you should not assume that he's not going to go to college. You should encourage him to go to college and take the best classes that he can take. Oh, the craziness we have to face as black people in this country. Let me continue. Uh, Judge Jackson uh, graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University, then attended Harvard Law School where she graduated uh, cum laude and was the editor of the Harvard Re Law Review. Uh, and uh, so, you know, her experiences go on and on and on. And she is more experienced than Kavanaugh, Barrett, and uh, I forget whoever else is on, on the Supreme Court, but uh, as far as those re Republican appointed uh, jurist justices, 
she is at a higher level than many of them. And for those Republicans to do the questioning they did with the craziness. Well, anyway, we know what they did. They did it for the cameras. They did it for their brainless uh, followers, uh, support. And uh, so, Judge Jackson, you are worthy. And you have earned this. Yes, you have. This is the Alvin Galloway Show here on RadioPhoenix.org. One way you can support Radio Phoenix is by becoming one of our sustaining donors. For your financial gift, sustainers receive discounts, savings, and other benefits provided by our sustainer program partners. And don't forget, your financial contribution is tax deductible. For more information or to sign up, call 602-254-6636 or go online to RadioPhoenix.org and click on the Donate tab on the top menu. And we thank you for your generous support of Community Radio. This is Althea Long, and you're listening to The Alvin Galloway Show. Stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show, Sundays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. for conversation, music, and culture. And tune in to The Althea Long Show. It's a music mind walk every Sunday at noon to 2 p.m. right here on Radio Phoenix.
Corey Henry and the Funk Apostles rise here on the Alvin Galloway Show. Yes, 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 yes. We're going to rise, people. We're going to rise and we are rising. Mm. Continue my discussion. Uh, I continue my discussion on the Contengi uh Brown-Jackson Judiciary Committee hearing. And uh, Corey, Senator Cory Booker, dynamic commentary. And it's so, it was so beautiful in, in watching the confirmation, the, the, the judiciary hearings, um, and seeing her family, seeing the joy in her daughter's seeing the uh, support that they gave her, seeing that how much pride they have in their mama, sitting up there, holding her own, knocking off the, the arrows that are being shot at her from the Republicans. And they were frustrated because they could not ruffle her feathers because she is a strong black woman who came from a strong black family whose parents gave her the foundation to be successful and she took that foundation and reached higher and the support from her husband who, who is a stylish individual who I know he felt emotional also in that hearing, hearing her talk and hearing some of the things that were going on, some of the words that were said. I know he wanted to jump up there and slap some of them, do a Will Smith on some of those Republican politicians because I know I wanted to. And speaking of that, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later the Academy Award incident. I have a different perspective than many um, seems to have, seem to have. But bravo to her. Bravo to President Joe Biden for nominating her. There were a number of qualified individuals, and I thank him for saying that he, if elected, would nominate a black woman and it is time that a black woman sits on the Supreme Court. He faced some fire in saying that, of course, from the Republicans. But they had no qualms about when 45 nominated a white woman they had no qualms when Reagan nominated a white woman. And he said that he would nominate a woman. And we all knew it wasn't going to be a black woman. So the hypocrisy of the Republican Party is amazing. And that goes into another conversation of voting rights. The battle for voting rights is still on in this country. 
and we have to make sure that we are registered, that we get out and vote. Every vote makes a difference. Every person makes a difference. No matter what kind of obstacles they try to put in your way, you have a responsibility not only for your ancestors, not only for your community, not only for your children, but for this country, for this nation, for your community, you have a responsibility to get out and vote and vote in people that will make a difference on a positive side for your well-being, for your community's well-being, for your family's well-being, for your race's well-being, your ethnicity's well-being. It is up to you to do that. Don't make excuses like, oh, it's the lesser of two evils. I'd rather have the lesser than the more. And having the lesser does not mean they're evil. It might mean that they are an angel. If they have your back, if they support most of the things that you support, then I would say they are not evil, but good. So tell your friends, because this midterm, we need to make sure that we hold on to the House and the Senate because the other people are fired up. They are going to get out and vote. You must get out and vote so they don't try to turn back the clock because you even have a, a, a representative here in Arizona who wants to turn back to the 50s. And you know what's going on in the 50s? Black people and other people of color had challenges in trying to vote. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to turn around to the 50s and beyond the 50s. They want you to count the number of bubbles on a, on a soap. They want you to count the number of jelly beans in a jar. They want to give you some crazy, almost cuss, some crazy questions that they don't even know. They'll try to prevent you from voting because they're trying to hold on to the racist power that they have. And we must eliminate that racist power and make a country that is for everybody equal, just, free, and have the opportunity for the pursuit of happiness for everybody. This is the Alvin Galloway Show. This land is your land.
land is your land Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings all right uh, speaking about the uh, the incident at the Academy Wars with uh, Will Smith and Chris Chris Rock I would say Chris Tucker but comedian Chris Rock here's my perspective first uh, I didn't see the thing I didn't see the the Academy Awards uh, live or whatever. Uh, you know, I saw the video of the incident. A couple things. One, if Chris Rock is supposed to be a friend of uh, Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith, he should have known why she had that haircut, her hair was shaved that she did not have hair because she has been open about the condition that she has that promotes hair loss that makes you lose your hair and you know there are those who say oh well I didn't know I don't know I, I, well if 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 you read the news hear the news or on Facebook most people knew some may not have known Chris Chris Rock should have known 
and I believe he knew, but he wanted to ad-lib and make a joke. And to those who say, well, Will first was laughing about it and looked at his wife and saw what funny, yeah. If you see something that's upsetting your wife, you're going to change your perspective too. I would hope you would. You, you initially it might not have been, you didn't think upsetting, but if you see that it is upsetting to your wife, then you have an obligation. If you love your wife, your significant other, you have an obligation to comfort her and to stick up for her. Here's another thing. He stuck up for his black woman, his black wife. And those up saying that, oh, he, he made the whole race look bad. No, he made it look good because he was a black man sticking up for his black woman. Now, on the side of Chris Rock, Chris Rock as a black man should not have made the joke he did to try to denigrate or uh, 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 make light of the condition that a black woman was suffering from. Who knows the struggle that she was going through at the time because of her health condition. I think Will Smith had every right to go up there and slap the, you know what, out of Chris Rock. I don't condone violence in most instances, but sometimes you have to take things Sometimes, sometimes you have to take things into immediate action. Don't let it linger. Don't let it fester. And then you have those talking about, well, what about the affair that his wife had with some rapper? Who gives a crap? That's their business. And they handled it the way they want to handle it. And he handled Chris Rock the way he wanted to handle Chris Rock. And to those who say, oh, well, if Mike Tyson went up there, he wouldn't have went up there and said, well, maybe Mike Tyson or Steve Harvey or whoever else you want to throw up there probably would not have made that joke or quote unquote joke. Because all jokes, just because somebody thinks it's funny, is not really funny maybe to the person who is at the butt of the joke, who is receiving, who is the recipient of the joke. So I applaud Will Smith for standing up for his wife in front of millions in the audience and in TV land across the world. He stood up for his black woman. And I thank him for that. Okay, that's enough of me and that incident. Community Radio is supported by a donation from Held Lumber Company, Incorporated, with several decades of history with community involvement in Arizona. We want to thank Held Lumber for their support. More information at HeltLumber.com. H-E-L-D-T Lumber.com This is Calvin Worthen, host of Blue Friday 
and Soul Star Live, telling you to stay tuned as you tune in for an intellectual tune-up. The Alvin Galloway Show for conversation, information, music, and culture every Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. on RadioPhoenix.org. the sky Fabrizio Paterini this past week um, on the 31st was the birthday um, a legendary civil rights fighter who fought for I would say the little people for the marginalized worker the farm workers who were being taken advantage of by farm owners and ranchers, growers, who had really no rights and no protection. Mr. Cesar Chavez, who was born in Yuma, Arizona, who founded the United Farm Workers Union with Dolores Huerta in the early 60s. A man of conviction, a man of faith. I definitely salute him and his nonviolent movement, even though the ranchers and the farm growers were not as peaceful as the protesters. And uh, I have a good friend, Mr. Alberto Esparza, who um, actually was kind of surprised to me. I didn't know he was a bodyguard for uh, Cesar Chavez. And I found that out the other day. I was listening to a podcast that he was featured in. Um, I knew he was a special person uh, and I knew he had connections, but doggone. Alberto, you didn't tell me that part. I knew you were involved in the movement early. 
uh, Alberto uh, and I connected when I was president of the East Valley NAACP. Uh, he founded an organization called Si Se Puede Foundation. And um, actually how we came together was because of an incident that happened in the Chandler School District. Um, there were uh, some children, some Latinx children that were on a, a school bus. Uh, and a bus driver did not have the fortitude to be able to control, I think it was a he, I, I'm pretty sure it was a he, control his um, his attitude and his handling of students on a bus. And if I'm trying to, this, this was early in the 90s, I'm trying to remember. And he, I think he forced the children to get off the bus in 100-degree weather. And, of course, you know, parents were upset. And I received a call from, uh, I believe, Alberto um, in reference to that incident. I think that was the first incident. It might have been the other incident of um, of the roundup, quote-unquote roundup. But I believe that was the, the first incident. I'll have to check with him to get, get a bearing on you. This is way back some decades ago. But anyway, so, you know, we had to come together and, and had to develop a plan to protest against that and make some suggestions on how to handle this incident and make sure that it didn't happen again because we wanted to make sure that children, when they're picked up at the school, make it to their drop-off place safely without any harm coming to them, without them being stranded in the heat somewhere on the side of a road. Now, another incident um, that we came together on was um, what we call the quote-unquote roundup, and that happened when Chandler's then police chief had the Chandler police working with the immigration uh, uh uh, I think it was a Border Patrol and Immigration ICE and rounding up quote-unquote suspected illegal immigrants. And a number of them were not illegal immigrants. They were American citizens. And the uh, embarrassment and the harassment that these individuals had to go through because this what was his name Bobby Joe Harris, you know, it's a redneck name. Bobby Joe Harris was the chief of police, and so it was a big incident that happened in Chandler and across the state, and had national news and everything. How American citizens, because of the color of their skin their brown skin was being rounded up by ICE. Immigration, I think it's Immigration Control Enforcement Enactment uh, Organization, wherever it is, you know what ICE is. But, and there was lawsuits and a whole bunch of things going on. So we worked, uh, the East Valley NAACP worked with uh, uh, some of the community members in Chandler and trying to 
bring light to that incident and solution. And um, and also uh, I awarded, uh, we awarded uh, Alberto, uh, an organization that he was with, uh, with uh, Miss Asenius and others uh, for their fighting for justice in this horrific incident. It, uh, this, and this was pre-Trump. Bobby Joe Harris. Yeah, and uh, thank goodness he was he was fired. I believe, yeah, he was fired as uh, police chief um, in, of Chandler. So I'm going to play a little clip of um, of a podcast, of the podcast that Alberto was uh, featured on. Rory Miner from our Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Division sat down and had a very interesting conversation with Alberto Esparza, former president and CEO of Si Se Puede Foundation for 34 years and currently the president and CEO of what he calls his most recent endeavor, iRise Foundation. Thank you, Alberto, for being here. Um, I wanted to kind of start off with getting a little bit of background and understanding how you first met or got involved with Senor Chavez. Well, um, in 1994, I was a student at Arizona State University and I came across Ben Miranda. He was a law student. And eventually, Ben Miranda went on to practice law. And in so doing so, he was the attorney for the United Farm Workers Union and the Cesar Chavez. So we knew each other, and uh, we had seen each other at a mixer. And he asked me what I was doing, and I told him I was volunteering on behalf of Chicanos por la Causa and that sort of thing. And then he asked me if I wanted to be a bodyguard to Cesar Chavez. I didn't realize that he knew Cesar Chavez. I didn't realize that he was the attorney for the United Farm Workers Union. I was very impressed with what he was doing at that time. And I jumped at the opportunity, and I said, yes, this is what I want to do. And uh, it was the impetus that basically drew me into activism and social services. And I had the pleasure of being a bodyguard to Cesar Chavez. Oh, my God, it was just very exciting. I was, an, I was truly in awe of him and inspired by him. And um, he was just an icon. So the more I volunteered for the United Farm Workers Union, the more I learned more about him. Very, um, very honest genuine. He wore his heart on the sleeve. He spoke for those who couldn't speak for themselves. And um, his whole work was um, was to support the farm worker workers and to make sure that they had better working, the conditions, and better pay and that sort of thing. So that's how his movement evolved. And uh, he was very inspirational. So Ben Miranda was a person that actually introduced me to United Farm Workers Union. He's the one that introduced me to become a Bodyguard of Cesar Chavez, and uh, I just got involved in the movement, and I became an organizer, and I actually um, was responsible for bringing a lot of people to these marches. One of the unique things about these marches um, is that they were a nonviolent movement, very respectful, very religious. Uh, we also had the, the Virgin Mary in the front, so it's not like what you see today where it could be very destructive, and um, Back then, Cesar Chavez um, followed Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement and Gandhi's movement, so um, it was a nonviolent, nonviolent effort on his part. So we were all trained 
in um, being nonviolent and what that meant and making sure that those who participated in the marches were nonviolent. That continued to draw me into the social activism and um, to give back to the community. And um, that's where everything has started. Um, during my time as a bodyguard, I would always reflect on what I wanted to do. And um, so I wanted to be like Cesar Chavez. I couldn't be the icon like him, but I wanted to do what he did. And I wanted to serve the community, and that is my passion. And um, that's where everything evolved. I feel like that work you know, reflects in um, the progress of Mexican-Americans and the, them feeling like they had a voice in their community to make a change and protect themselves and the workers that were out there experiencing these harsh conditions. And it was the first time that we had a leader, unlike any other leader with um, the Cesar Chavez. I remind you, he had an eighth grade education, but uh, he was he just had this leadership qualities that people drew to him, and he was the first one to step up and say, yeah, basta, which this ain't going to happen anymore. And so he started his movement, and uh, his passing was very difficult for the entire community because we lost a great leader, a man who wore his heart on his sleeves, a man who spoke for the people that couldn't speak, the families were who were really getting abused by the um, by the owners of the farms, whether it be physically, mentally, sexually, all these things were occurring and nobody cared. Nobody cared because the majority of those folks were immigrantes who the farm workers were bringing in just to um, work in the fields. And um, there was times that um, these people didn't get paid. Uh, but who could these people go to? They couldn't go to anyone. Like Alberto mentioned, Chavez had an eighth grade education and began working in the fields full time after he stopped going to school. He joined the U.S. Navy, serving for two years in a segregated unit, and after his service was over, he returned to farm work, got married, and had children. Farm workers at that time were not covered by minimum wage laws and made as little as 40 cents an hour and did not qualify for unemployment insurance or assistance. Sometimes they had no electricity, running water, or bathrooms, much less bathroom breaks, while they worked the fields. Chavez, along with Dolores Huerta, founded the National Farm Workers Association, later the United Farm Workers of America, and won important victories to raise pay and improve working conditions for farm workers in the late 1960s and 70s. Before that, he was a grassroots organizer for the Community Service Organization, also known as CSO, a Latino civil rights group where he worked to register new voters and fight racial and economic discrimination. This is also where he met Huerta and found a shared interest in organizing farm workers. In this conversation with Rory, Alberto mentions how influential Chavez's leadership was among the farm working community, an impact that led to a 5,000 farm workers strike, a nationwide boycott of California grapes, negotiated contracts, safer working conditions, including the elimination of harmful pesticides and unemployment and health care benefits for agricultural workers. Cesar Chavez once said, and I quote, we cannot seek achievement for ourselves and forget about the progress and prosperity for our community. Back to Rory and Alberto. When I started the organization back in 1993, I'm talking about the CICEP Weather Foundation, 
it was all community. It was all community. It was all given, providing resources and advocacy to the community, and just little by little, it started growing. When I started the organization, I had no money. I had zero money. I didn't even have a place to stay. I was sleeping in the vacant offices. I was walking from school district to school district, trying to implement the CSIP Foundation. And one of the th- my strengths is the ability to motivate students. And I felt so empowered by that. And it is a gift. And I think the gift was a direct result of my involvement with the Cesar Chavez and the United Farmers Movement and my role model, Ben Miranda, because I think that if there ever was a person to replace the Cesar Chavez, it was Ben Miranda. He was just a, a beautiful person, a giving person. He was an attorney that really didn't charge folks when they, when they didn't have money. Very instrumental, not only in my life, but others. And uh, his passing really hurt, even today. When I started um, the IRISE project, same philosophy as the CISA Puerto Foundation, same philosophy as the United Farm Workers Union and the Cesar Chavez. So um, I wanted to come back um, and continue my work. My life's work is in the community because I'm truly nothing without the community. Um, you know, and I'm blessed to be here because a couple of years ago I was very ill with prostate cancer. And um, um, I got better this past year. And um, not being in the community was difficult at best, and um, I had to get back, so I started the IRISE Foundation because I needed the community more than the community needed me. Tell us a little bit about your background as far as, um, did you grow up in Arizona? How did yeah. you first get involved in um, the, the local community here and kind of building things from the ground up? Well, I was born and raised in Phoenix, loving parents, three siblings, um, and the Latino community that's relatively small. <laughs> And uh, I went to Dunbar Elementary School at that time, which was an African-American school. I was the only Latino there. And um, went to Grant School. Was Now it was a big difference. It was more Latino than anything else. And uh, it was there that they talked about the United Farm Workers Union and Cesar Chavez. I always liked to read books. And I read books from Martin Luther King Jr. to the Cesar Chavez. And then I went to uh, the Phoenix Union in high school. It's, it's, it closed down, I believe, in late 1990s. But it was a phenomenal school, and I got involved in some of the school clubs out there. And then I went to the Phoenix College. That's really where it started. They had an organization called Mecha, which is historically an Hispanic club, but it was socially conscious. It was a very activism. And I recall walking in the halls of the library, and I came across two gentlemen who just got back from Vietnam, and um, they were like brown berets. I didn't know what that meant, and um, they asked me if I was involved in community issues and that sort of thing, and I said I wasn't, and so they invited me to a meeting, and at that meeting I saw this Latina woman speak so eloquently and basically hold us held us socially responsible because we were not involved. But I loved it, and that's how I got involved with the United Farm Workers Union. And and one thing led to another. One of the things that this group did was they did boycotts and, and uh, the marches. And then I know at the Phoenix College, there wasn't many Latino educators or professors there. 
So this was my first time doing a sit-in, and I didn't know what that meant, but we were doing a sit-in. It was a very difficult time, you know, but it was nonviolent. We just basically sat in the dean's office or maybe the provost's office, I can't recall that, but security came and threw us out, and that was my initiation into mm -hmm. the United Farm Workers Union and what that meant. And then, But I loved everything about it, and... Uh, that's really where it started. I got a, um, I went to Arizona State University, got a degree in the criminal justice. Then I went to Northern Arizona University, got a master's degree in education. And then I got involved with Chicano Sport La Casa, which is the leading Latino nonprofit uh, in, not only in the state of Arizona, but throughout the country. And it was there that the former CEO, who's no longer there anymore, he passed away. And he was the one that sent me to the city of Scottsdale when the city of Scottsdale was having problems with the Latino community and the non-Latino community. And that's where I really learned about trying to build bridges, breaking those walls that divided communities, because I really believe that people don't get along because they never sit down and talk. And once we sit down, we're going to find that we really are the same. And that's the philosophy that I brought to the CISA Puede Foundation. That's the philosophy that I bring to the IRIS Foundation. But that's where I really got involved in the social services. I tried to meet the demands that were placed. There was a lot of demands placed on me uh, because I was working with the Latino community in Scottsdale. There wasn't, I don't think there was a Latino organization working with the Latino community in, so I was the first. And how CISA Puede got coined was the community would often say, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't learn English, and I would say, CISA Puede. And then that was before my time with United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez, so I called the organization CISA Puede. And, um, you know, because I heard that that was a rallying cry to the movement. And so that's really where it actually started. And then one thing led to another. It just kept growing. It kept growing, Rory. I was in Mesa Public Schools working with kids who were heavily at risk. That's what they called them at that time. And kept growing. I brought in soccer. I brought in ESL for the parents. I brought in dance, mariachis, baile flacorico.
Give the people what they want. P.J. Morton and Yola. Thursday night, I attended a YWCA uh, 20th annual. I attended the YWCA uh, 20th annual leadership awards. And two of my friends were uh, awarded. Dr. Perletta Ramos and Gisette Knight. Uh, it was held in downtown Phoenix. Nice nice location called The Croft. I, don't, I might have to do an event there. Um, but these are two, and there was two other, well, yeah, two other, uh, awardees, um, and watching the video, uh, the slide presentation beforehand, I saw I had a few other friends that had been awarded in the press, uh, Tina Brown and, uh, Diana Gregory, um, I think there's two or three others I can't recall at the moment, but, uh, these are some great women doing great things, and, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Perletta Ramos and I have been friends for a number of years. And I remember the first time we met, um, I was uh, reporting on a women's shelter, um, women and family shelter, um, domestic shelter, because of domestic violence, uh, unfortunately, is prevalent in this country. And I met Ms., uh, Dr. Ramos there, and she was working for um, a domestic violence uh, nonprofit organization, and um, and I remember, it, I think it had rained that night before, and the ground was still kind of wet, and she was walking across the the ground, and her heels were getting stuck in the in the soil. So, I'm the perfect gentleman I am, I had to go and help her out and uh, get her to uh, solid ground, as you can say. And so from that. Uh, we became a good friends, and uh, she's an amazing woman doing amazing things. She has hiked the Himalayas, uh, Kilimanjaro, uh, man, and she's uh, now a filmmaker, and uh, definitely she's an author. Um, and so she's uh, with three other women. Um, they uh, hiked uh, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. And um, they have a documentary that'll be coming out uh, in the near future, so I'll tell you more about that and Dr. Ramos here in a minute. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Girls, we run this mother. Yeah. Girls, we run this mother.
And when I met uh, Perletta, Dr. Perletta Ramos, uh, she was working uh, for the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Violence, a great organization, a nonprofit organization that is doing uh, mighty work uh, to um, give support to those who are going through these traumatic experiences of domestic violence. Um, check them out. Uh, they're, you know, check them out at uh, the Arizona Coalition of, to End Sexual and Domestic Violence. Now, as I said, she is an uh, well. I guess I, I don't know if I did say, it, but anyway, she's an attorney. Yeah, I did say she's an attorney, and um, she has had a great career. Um, uh, she worked for the Arizona um, State uh, Liquor Board Commission. Um, and other organizations she had on law practice. And she grew up in some, experiences, some traumatic uh, incidents. Um, you know, um, her, her father and I think a, few, a couple of her siblings were killed in an automobile accident. And uh, later on, her mother married an abusive individual. Um, but she overcame the, those situations and has flourished and is helping others flourish. And, and uh, the work that she is doing in the community, uh, she was a school board member um, and uh, she sits on several boards. Um, so she is doing some great work and congratulations to her. And um, I'm glad to say that she is my friend and also a friend. Uh, Gisette Knight was one of the honorees. Uh, Gisette Knight, a young woman who came from New York. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to be wrong, but she, came, she either came from Brooklyn or Queens, but I think it's Brooklyn. So we're going to go with that until she corrects me again. Anyway, she's been on my show, just like uh, Dr. Ramos has been on my show a couple of times, um, and Gisette has been on my show and uh, she had petitioned uh, the city of Phoenix for a Black Lives mural, a uh, street mural like they have in DC. And uh, and I remember when she contacted me about it and I said, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's gonna fly here in, in, in Phoenix because of the, you know, the low number of black people here. and. Uh, trying to gather the support from the city council and but and and of course you know the, the city shut it down but she was not um, going to be stopped uh, so as she says uh, they, she asked the city for one mural and she wind up getting 28 <laughs> uh, so for each day of Black History Month there are murals around the downtown area of Phoenix that celebrate black history, um, scientists, uh, entertainers, uh, singers, actors, educators um, that highlight their faces on the walls of buildings around downtown uh, Phoenix. And not only that, because of the work she's done and highlighting uh, the accomplishments and the careers of these uh, black individuals, these black Americans, these Americans. Other cities, she is doing the same thing in other cities now and has uh, received some 
assistance from uh, some nice uh, large corporations. And she's doing uh, Black History Murals in Los Angeles, uh, currently in Compton, California, uh, Dallas, and in Atlanta, Georgia, and probably more to come soon. Um, so it's a wonderful story um, of my friend Gisette Knight, and uh, I thank her for highlighting uh, the contributions that African Americans have made to this country. We built this country, uh, as, uh, my, as my great first lady, Michelle Obama said. Uh, we built this country and our ancestors were not paid. It was forced labor. And um, so we should reap some of the benefits. Um, we should get our reparations and uh, it's going to take all of us to come together to unite either our allies and all of us for that to happen. And also, um, Gisette is also you know, doing some things, other things here in the community. And she is a rising star in the black community. And I'm glad to see that. And congratulations to the other awardees. Uh, at the YWCA Tribute to Leadership event. Um, the other awardees were a Native American uh, young lady who is doing some great work uh, in the community um, in regards to a Native, uh, Native American um, or um, Native American people. And her, Teresa Sundest, um, and uh, she's working at uh, Scottsdale Community College, of which I uh, attended briefly. Um, actually, that's where I launched my journalism career because uh, I was actually, you know, it's kind of kind of funny because actually I became interested in journalism from a Native American teacher there. Um, Don Cole, who was a journalism teacher, and I was, and a photographer, and I was taking a photography class, and he encouraged me to take a journalism class, and also encouraged me to uh, work for the school newspaper. And my first assignment uh, for the school newspaper was covering a Black History program that featured uh, Pulitzer Prize. A poet, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, a sister from Chicago. Uh, and uh, so that was my first um, assignment. And boom, and some decades later, I'm, I'm still in this. Because actually, I came, to, I came to Phoenix. I came to Arizona to study engineering and branched off into journalism. You know, you never know which way you're going to turn. You never know. But I'm thankful for Don Cole and his mentorship. And I'm thankful for uh, Charissa Sundes and the work that she is doing for her community uh, and the Native community. And that's so, you know, not only for the Native community, that, uh, you know, when you lift somebody up, when you pe put people on equal ground and give them uh, freedom and justice and equality, it raises everybody up. And I wish everybody could see that, that when one rises, we all rise. Don't try to keep 
other folks down because you think you can lose your power. I think you, you gain power from your humanity speaking uh, sense when you assist others to be the best that they can be and contribute to society. And congratulations all to, also to uh, Carol Ackerson, who uh, has a, been, I guess, a long-time supporter of the YWCA and, and the things that she has done throughout her career. So it was a, a fantastic event, and I tip my hat off to the YWCA. Check them out and see how you can get involved because they're doing some wonderful things. They're encouraging women, women of color, girls of color. They're getting in STEAM careers and doing some mentorship. They're feeding the hungry. They're, they're doing some fabulous outreach efforts um, throughout the community and throughout the nation. So check out the YWCA. And if you don't know what it means, it's Young Women's Christian Association. You don't have to be a Christian to be a member of it. But, you know, that was the name that came along a long time ago. Um, but uh, they are doing some outstanding work in the community.
staple singers, respect yourself. And this week, President Joe Biden signed the landmark anti-lynching bill, making lynching a federal hate crime. It's an effort that took over 122 years when the first anti-lynching bill was introduced in Congress by U.S. House of Representative member George Henry White, the only black member of Congress at the time. 122 years later, we finally get an anti-lynching bill. Uh, the one that uh, Representative Henry, uh, Henry White, proposed, of course, failed. And the years passed and numerous attempts uh, passing the, uh, the bill uh, to legislation never came to fruition. Uh, but the Senate bill passed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act in March. And uh, it was signed uh, just this past week um, by President Biden and Senators Cory Booker, Tim Scott, Tim Scott, and House of Representative Bobby Rush introduced the bill named after Emmett Till, the 14-year-old black uh, boy that was brutal, brutally kidnapped and murdered by two white men in Mississippi in 1955. And if you don't know the Emmett Till story, I don't know where you've been, but um, you should do some research on because in, in Money, Mississippi, which was not far from where my parents were from. My parents were from Durant, Mississippi. And so he was murdered. He, he came down to Chicago, came down from Chicago to visit some family members in, in Money, Mississippi. His uh, mom was kind of hesitant uh, for letting go because uh, she knew of the trauma and horrific situations in Mississippi. Um, but... Um, the son persuaded her, and she he went down, and and unfortunately he was murdered. And Money, Mississippi, was only about sixty, probably about sixty, maybe seventy miles from where my parents were from, and from where me and my siblings would go every summer, just like uh, Emmett Till. Uh, we would go down to Durant, Mississippi and spend time with our grandmother and other relatives. Um, and this was also during, you know, segregation. And, you know, you had to still had the white uh, color fountains. And uh, I think I have some I have some pictures uh, I have to locate that I took of the signs. Uh, uh, and I remember the train station, you had your white side and you had your black side. And of course the black side was uh, uh, was kind of dingy and not uh, uh, had not it was not kept up. Uh, the white side was pristine and you know, clean floors and nice seats and everything. Uh, larger uh, sitting area. Uh, so that's, that's the things that happened and I was born just Mm, four years after uh, Emmett Till was murdered. And um, finally, um, this bill has been signed into law. Because uh, it still makes a difference because there's still hate crimes going on uh, in this this country. 
you look at George Floyd, you look at uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, you, you look at uh, Sandra Bland, and you you know the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so thank goodness um, I tip my hat to those who continue to work to make this come uh, come through to become a reality in this country. You can go back to Miss Ida Wells Barnett, uh, who um, was a uh, who published a newspaper in uh, Tennessee and was run out of Tennessee uh, because of um, she printed about the lynchings going on of black people. And uh, Ida Mae Wells uh, became one of the founders uh, of the NAACP, along with uh, several other individuals. Um, so this, this, and then every every time uh, the NAACP, a person when they found a person had been lynched, they would uh, put a flag uh, outside their window and say a man was lynched today. And um, and then you can look at the um, lynching museum uh, down in Alabama, and I have to go check that out myself. Um, and it uh, documents the the horrific side of this country and how uh, they mistreated our people and for no reasons uh, killing them um, in this country. And it says, uh, um, Tuskegee University Archives has documented more than 4,700 lynchings dating back to 1881 a number that archivist Dana Chandler said undercounts the actual figure because we know it was probably two or three times uh, more than that. And the fate of many people who were kidnapped under cover of darkness remains unknown. Because I know when I traveled through Mississippi and, um, you know, recently as I go, grew, grew older, I wondered how many bodies were thrown into the different rivers and buried and uh, dumped into different uh, wooded areas of the country, of that country, of that state, um, what we call out in the country. Because uh, there's some deep woods in uh, Mississippi, and um, you never know how many unknown people have suffered under the hate and racism and bigotry of this country we call America. So I want to thank you again for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show as we come to an end of this segment of the show. And remember, we are here every Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. and You can catch the Alvin Galloway Show. And check us out on Facebook and Instagram. And um, don't forget, we got those great t-shirts, the Alvin Galloway t-shirts uh, that has a great saying, which is, you know, as I always say, today is a great day to make somebody's day great. Be blessed. This is the Alvin Galloway Show.
Freyette, Peter Sandberg. Thank you for listening to the Alvin Galloway Show podcast. We hope you like our show. And if you do, we hope that you will show your support by sharing our podcast with others and also supporting us monetarily. No donation is too small. We thank you again, and we'll see you on the next show.